Have you ever had a moment in your life where you looked at everything that was taking place and asked the question, is God against me? Is he frustrated with me? Is he angry with me? Does he despise me? I thought the book says that he's for me. Is God against me? If you're with us today for the first time or for the first time in a long time, we're in week two of a series on the book of Lamentations. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Lamentations, it's not real pithy. Uh, We walk through the text and we can see the difficulty of the fallen world in which we live and the way that sin seems to infect and infest and invade everything. A couple of things that took place last week came up to me and she said, Chad, you're taking us on a death march. Which is actually what we're doing as we look at this text in light of the calendar of Christianity. The weeks that lead up to Easter are a death march. We should reflect and think on sorrow and grief and bitterness and brokenness. We, we should consider those things. Those things should weigh heavy on us. Today, as we look at this text, the central idea of our text is this. Though the anger of God brings judgment, He wants us to turn to Him. Though the anger of God brings judgment... He wants us to turn to Him. The text is going to talk to us about what it means to be covered by the cloud of God's discipline. You can actually see in this passage that really you have two pieces. One is larger and one is smaller. The first is in verses 1 through 19. And you see the narrator, who we believe to be Jeremiah, but it may not have been Jeremiah, uh, talking to us about the cloud of God's discipline and how God's discipline overshadowed everything. How there's nowhere that you could go where it was not. Everything was affected by it. We know we felt clouds recently. We have about two weeks in our area where it seems as if weather gets difficult. Those happened for us over the last few weeks. I can remember when I found out that it was going to rain every single day. Not only was it going to rain, it was going to be really, really cold. Now this doesn't just affect the weather. It affects every person who is under that weather. It affects your children. I'm assuming that parents would say amen to that as you're not allowed to send them outside. It affects your pets. It affects the way that you drive. It definitely affects the way that other people drive. It affects everything. And in verses 1 through 19, we'll look at the cloud of God's discipline. And in 1 through 9, we'll see some things in particular about that. And then verses 20 through 22 of chapter 2 work in a different way because it is the city of Jerusalem personifying itself projecting itself in response to the way that God has shown this discipline. So if you've shown up today and you are thinking to yourself, if we're walking through the book of Lamentations, this is going to seem hopeless. There's a good chance that it'll feel that way. But there's a glimmer of hope in the text, and I don't want us to miss that. As the writer, who we believe to be Jeremiah, takes us toward the idea of what God is actually doing when it seems as if God is against us. A couple of things before we read through the text that I want you to remember that will be beneficial to every one of us as we spend time in this text today and throughout this series in the book of Lamentations and other passages where we see suffering and grief in the Scriptures. 
One is this, when we look into Lamentations in particular, Babylon, the city of the, the nation of Babylon has surrounded what sin had already invaded. Sin was already there. So, and because of that, it seems as if Babylon is doing the damage when in actuality, the people of Israel have chosen sin over Yahweh. And the second thing that we're going to see in this text that I don't want us to miss is sin does not have to be yours to belong to you. Because of the, the cloud of sin and the way that it has rained down and it has worked its way into our lives, it all belongs to us in one way or another. God's anger in this passage has destroyed Jerusalem. It's not only destroyed Jerusalem, it's destroyed her rituals, it's destroyed her rulers. And when you read through the text, we'll notice that God seems like the primary enemy of his people. And the whole time, God wants those who remain to turn to Him in the face of difficulty, darkness, despair. Last week, we gave a definition of the word of what it means for us to lament. You'll notice, if you have your Bible open, the various Hebrew letters that are there. And for us, as we work through the notion of lament in the text, we're going to see there are four ways, uh, following the pattern of A, B, C, D, that we can lament all that has taken place. In this broken, sin-filled, sin-infested world, when we are looking at our sin, and not only our sin, the sins of others, and even the sins on the global scale, one, we as a people have been given permission to approach God. Secondly, we see that we can be real with God. Third, we see that we should consider God. And four, in the midst of that, we depend upon God. Let's look together in Lamentations chapter 2, the entirety of it, this dirge. How the Lord has overshadowed daughter Zion with his passion. The Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has demolished the fortified cities of daughter Judah. He brought them to the ground. He defiled the kingdom and its leaders. He has cut off every horn of Israel in his burning anger, and he has withdrawn his right hand in the presence of the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything. He has strung his bow Like an enemy. His right hand is positioned like an adversary. He has killed everyone who was who was the delight to hit to the eye, pouring out his wrath like fire on the tent of daughter Zion. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He swallowed up all its places and destroyed its fortified cities. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation without daughter Judah, within daughter Judah. He has wrecked his temple as if it were merely a shack in a field. He's destroyed his place of dwelling. The Lord has abolished appointed festivals and Sabbaths in Zion. He's despised the king and priests in his fierce anger. The Lord has rejected his altar, repudiated his sanctuary. He's handed the walls of her palaces over to the enemy. They have raised a shout in the house of the Lord. As on the day of an appointed festival, the Lord determined to destroy the wall of daughter Zion. He stretched out a measuring line and did not restrain himself from destroying her. He made the ramparts and the walls grieve. Together they wasted away. Zion's gates have fallen to the ground. He has destroyed and shattered the bars on her gates. 
Her king and her leaders live among the nations. Instruction is no more. And even her prophets receive no vision from the Lord. The elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are worn out from weeping. I'm churning within. My heart is pouring out in grief because of the destruction of my dear people, because infants and nursing babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry out to their mothers, Where is the grain and the wine? As they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their life pours out in the arms of their mothers, what can I say on your behalf? What can I compare you to, daughter Zion? What can I liken you to so that I may console you, virgin daughter Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets saw visions for you that were empty and deceptive. They did not reveal your iniquity and so to restore and so restore your fortunes. They saw pronouncements for you, and they were empty and misleading. All who passed by scornfully clapped their hands at you. They hiss and they shake their heads at daughter Zion, at daughter Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies open their mouths against you. They hiss and they gnash their teeth, saying, we have swallowed her up. This is the day that we have waited for. We have lived to see it. The Lord has done what He planned. He has accomplished His decree which He ordained in days of old. He has demolished without compassion. Letting the enemy gloat over you and exalting the horn of your adversaries. The hearts of the people cry out to the Lord. Wall of daughter Zion, let your tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief and your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night from the first watch of the night. Pour out your heart like water before the Lord's presence. Lift up your hands to Him for the lives of your children who are fainting from hunger at the head of every street. Lord, look and consider to whom you've done this. Should women eat their own children? The infants they've nurtured should priests and prophets be killed in the Lord's sanctuary. Both young and old are lying on the grounds in the street. My young women and young men have fallen by the sword. You've killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without compassion. You summon those who terrorize me on every side as if it were an appointed festival day. On the day of the Lord's anger, no one escaped or survived. My enemies have destroyed those I nurtured and reared. Why don't you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your word. And somehow, Father, in the midst of this, we would ask 
that you meet us as you take us to a place in history that we have not experienced in full, but we may have experienced in some way, shape, or form. God, for every grieving soul in this room, whether it is over the grief of their own sin or the grief of the sins of another or or just grief because this world doesn't seem right, would you somehow help us to see that you want to meet with us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The people of Israel are remembering a day in this passage. They are... They are remembering the days that are no more. Everything has passed. They are no longer, as he will say later, in this elevated place. Now, when you look to the story of the people of Israel, you can see in the Old Testament early on, there was a dependence upon God. They definitely made poor decisions, but over and over you would see them wanting to meet with God. This continual theme of meeting with God runs through the story of Exodus and, Le- and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. They meet with God. There's a place where they would go to meet with God, and there was something sacred that took place there. Something sacred that they remembered. And as time passed and and they grew more and more powerful, their eyes were more and more drawn away from the sovereign Yahweh of the Scriptures. And they were finding their comfort in other things, in lesser things. And the saddest aspect of it is not only were they finding their comfort in lesser things, they were finding that comfort and still playing the game of being worshipers of Yahweh. And here... God is using things that are taking place in their kingdom and taking place with this three-year siege of Jerusalem to show them their real desperate need for Him. To bring them to a place where they would see that they have devalued Him, they have taken Him for granted, they have not seen Him for who He actually is. He is causing them to long for a day that is no more. The lamentor here is grieving a past that cannot be recovered. The people of Israel are hoping to get back to something that doesn't necessarily seem to be, seem to be possible. Andy Bernard from The Office says, I wish there was a way to know that you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. When you consider the difficulty of Israel as they would wander through the wilderness. And they would consider the hardships of what it meant to be a nation without a nation. To be a people without a temple. Yet they had a God who they would cling to. And now on the other side of that with this temple in place and Jerusalem in place and All that comes with that, they somehow are missing God. And maybe you felt that at some point in your life when you look at the past that was your faith. You remember the days for you when you were clinging to, hoping for, you were trusting in God. Even more so than you do right now. Well, the question that we have to ask if we're going to be uh, historically accurate is, how in the world did this happen? Well, it happened because they had three good kings, and I use the word good loosely. And then they moved to some mediocre kings, and then there are the terrible kings. 
And over and over, as you look through the history of the nation of Israel, you see them, these kings, leading the people into the wrong places. And as the kings would lead them to the wrong places, there would be the religious leaders who would align themselves with the kings. They would surround the king. And they would become puppets for the king while he was making deals with foreign gods and the people who worshipped them. It's the image that we have of a political leader or any political leader who, who sits down and surrounds himself with religious people. And we would say as followers of Jesus that our hope is that they would turn that leader to Jesus when what we found multiple times is that something altogether different happens. Not that we do not see the hearts of the, these religious leaders turning the political leader to Christ. We see the adverse effect of that. As those who are in religious places of power love power and are corrupted by it. We live in a strange world. King Zedekiah was the king of Judah. And though they were under Babylonian rule, they were a tributary Babylon, but they weren't necessarily all in. And then he tried to make a deal. He made a deal with other superpowers of the day, some believed one to be Egypt. And the goal was to overthrow Babylon. The response of the king of Babylon was to take this city that he had allowed to exist under siege and squeeze the life out of it. We don't get to make a deal with one devil to get the better of another. The things God opposes, he opposes. The things that God is against, he's against. Because all are born from sin, and all are reflections of sin, and we would take heed to be careful not to be Israel in a world that surrounds us with Babylon's and Egypt's. Jerusalem has lost everything. There's no place for them to meet with God. That was the whole purpose of establishing Jerusalem. To meet with God. To have a place that was their temple. Because there is no place to meet with God. There is no place for them to make sacrifices for sin. This place has been wiped out, leveled. And it seems to be the hand of God that's doing it. And the reason it seems that way is that it is God will go to turn the heart of his people to him. And for every moment we've said something to the effect of God would never do that. Could we take heed and allow the weight of what actually happens in the grand providence of God to speak and interact with us. The book in, there's a bookend in chapter 2, or in Lamentation 2. It's a bookend of, of God's anger. 
Because God hates sin. He hates the sin that has shattered the world. He hates the sin that affects the way that you interact with one another. He hates the sin that we cover up. He hates it. He hates it. He hates it. He loathes it. He abhors it. He believes that it should be put to death. The Hebrew word for anger is the actual Hebrew word for the word nose, as in flared nostrils. Maybe you've seen flared nostrils at some point from a small person that lives at your home. Or maybe you have flared your nostrils at, toward a small person that may live at your home. The word for fury that you see in the passage is the idea of overflow. It's a volcano overflowing. The word for rage is the Jewish word for heat. When you talk about the wrath of God in the passage, it's scolding. Some interpreters say cursing or threatening. To blaze is to burn. God's righteous anger opposes sin and is good for us to receive that, sadly. Think about this. When God is angry toward the sin that is in you, that he is always seeking to remove and to move you away from, it is good for us to see that and acknowledge that. Because it shows us that God cares enough about us for us to want to turn to Him. God wants each of us to turn to Him, to trust Him, to believe in Him, to have faith in Him. The word daughter is used 12 times in the passage. God has a distinct care for this city of Jerusalem. He loves these people. He wants the best for these people. And God is not going to use guilt and shame to motivate because God doesn't use guilt and shame to motivate. But there is a difference, a distinct difference between guilt and shame and awareness. God does want us as his people to be aware of what sin is and the consequences that are part of it. In the whole of chapter of this chapter, but in 2, 1 through 9 specifically, we see that God is actively making us aware, making the people of Israel, the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem. Why is God ever acting like this in the text? Over the years, when you look to the story of Israel, Israel has deserved the unbridled anger of God multiple times, and they barely ever receive it. And the weight of that should sit on every believing person in this room right now who wonders why God would allow something or why God would even enact something or God would do something, allowing things to move through His loose hand. Why would God allow this to take place? Over the years, when we look at what sin is and its unbridled effect on us, I don't want us to miss that there have been multiple times for each of us where we have deserved God's anger to be directed toward us, and He has relented of showing that to us. The story of Israel, in many ways, the first, in verse 1, you you see that He did not acknowledge His footstool. That word for footstool in the original language is this place, the city of Jerusalem, is where God would rest to show that He was powerful. And the people of Israel, they would find Hope in that. They would find joy in that. They would find power and position in that. And yet God is saying, your behavior has gotten so bad 
that this symbol of my presence and my power, I'm going to ignore because I don't need a city to be the God of the world. When you get to verse 2, without compassion, God has swallowed up. God has gulped down all of the dwellings of Jacob. The word there is pasture. There's no place for the people of Israel to rest. There's no peace. There's no protection. There's nothing to eat. They are in a miserable state. But they've made the temple a mockery. Imagine that we're in worship today and your hands are up. And that may not be you, but it's one of those Sundays where you just, you're in it. You are intertwined with worship. The Lord is moving in our midst. We have people weeping over sin, turning from their sin to Yahweh. And down the middle aisle, someone walks and they offer you popcorn or cotton candy or Coca-Cola or Coke Zero. That's what you do in a movie theater. That's what you do when you're being entertained. And when God looked at the nation of Israel, though they claimed to be worshiping after Him, it was just secular entertainment. Israel's security is in the temple. And Yahweh is about to wipe that temple out. Because He doesn't need the temple. He has strung his bow like an enemy. That's hard to hear. We sang earlier about God being on our side. What happens when it feels as if God is against us? It does use the language intentionally like an enemy. Not that he is an enemy. Because though he is functioning like an enemy, he is functioning like an enemy for your good. Your enemy never functions for your good. Satan's not for you. And, and the ways that Satan seems to manifest in this world, those, that's not for you. You may find a momentary happiness or you may find pleasure. But eventually that leaves us lacking and longing for something else because it doesn't fill us. He's fighting against his people. He's functioning as an adversary. And it's strange to think that God would oppose you with your ultimate good in mind. But that's exactly what's taking place. When someone loves you enough to have difficult conversations, that is a reflection of what God does for us whole scale. He loves you enough to care. Verse 5 again, the Lord is like an enemy. He's swallowed up by Israel. As he swallowed up Israel, he swallowed up all of its palaces. He destroyed its fortified cities. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation without, within daughter Judah. Wrecking his temple. Verse 6. He has wrecked his temple as if it were merely a shack in the field. If you've ever been at an event where someone puts up one of the pop-up tents and then the, the gulf winds blow. 
and take that tent away, that's the imagery that's here. That would not shock you for him to wipe out this construct of a shack of a tent. If this building were to blow away, it would shock us. Verse 7, the Lord has rejected his altar. The altar is the place in the history of the people of Israel where Yahweh meets. The relationship between God and his people has been ruptured by their frivolous behavior. The temple is loud all the while. The festivals are loud. The rituals are loud. Everything is loud, 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 loud. They're going through the acts of worship for the sake of entertainment. The people are having all of these gatherings with no thoughts whatsoever as to whether or not God should be considered. Pastor Tony Evans in Dallas says this, Religion can be one of the greatest hindrances to faith because it creates dependency on a ritual rather than on the one, on the God of the universe who can do all things. And I understand why we interact with media the way that we do, and I grasp why we listen to certain Christian songs when we do, and I know why we listen to podcasts that we listen to, and and we interact with things that are talking to us regularly. Hopefully we're having good interactions with things that honor God. But please, please, for the sake of, of the relationship that you have with the Lord, do not let that become consumer entertainment because we're no different than the people of Israel. God's dealing with them and now now he has wiped out the temple where all this ridiculous noise was taking place and all the loud noises are gone and they realize what's in the background. Replacing the loud noises of their ritual worship is the voice of the enemy. And the Babylonians are celebrating in the destroyed temple. They weren't desecrating it though. The people of Judah had already done that. They've already made a mockery of the temple. The Babylonians have just shown up and they've joined in the party. Verse 8. The Lord determined to destroy the wall of daughter Judah. He stretched out a measuring line and did not restrain himself from destroying. He made the ramparts and the walls grieve. Together they waste away. The Lord is clear that he's going to remove the wall because he doesn't need the temple to be God. He does not need me. He, honestly, he doesn't need me or you to be God. He stretched out a measuring line. That is the intention of the text to communicate to the people who are reading that this was planned. And in this personified speech, the walls that are supposed to protect Jerusalem... They're mourning in their demise. Yahweh's destruction is going to be so intentional that not one stone is left on top of another. Because God does not want us to have any faint, misguided hope that any of this stuff that we've built can save us. The stuff that you build doesn't save you. Whether it is sacred or sacred or secular, the things that we build and the the things that we patch together, there is no salvation in that. And Yahweh looks at the people who have claimed to belong to Him. They don't look anything like Him. I think that's one of the hardest things to consider, trying to live out your faith in this world. 
the number of times we see people who claim to belong to Jesus, yet we don't look anything like Him. There's no reflection of Jesus. There's no compassion of Jesus. There's no mercy or kindness of Jesus. God is destroying everything here. Go with me to verse 12. The children are going to cry out. This is difficult to read. Where is the grain and the wine? These children who are surrounded by Babylonians are hungry and they're asking their parents for for bread. There is no bread. All the bread is gone. It's been eaten. The children go from that to asking for wine because maybe, just maybe, it will dull the pain of their hunger. This shows us the drastic nature of what sin is. Yahweh continues through the Lamentor and says, What can I say on your behalf? What can I compare you to? Who can I liken you to? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets, they saw visions for you that were empty and deceptive. This is pointing yet again to some of the religious leaders who had been corrupted by, by people who were not guiding them and did not care for them and were not for their good. And then God shows them what is in reality happening as those who are opposed to Him do what those who are opposed to Him do. They scornfully clap their hands at you. They are mocking you, shaking their heads at you. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty? Is this really what you claim it is? And how often do those who are outside of a walk with the Lord Jesus look at our lives and the shambles that they may be in because we have chosen to trust in in the worst of things and say, that is what Christianity is? That is a mockery. I want nothing to do with that. Your enemies open their mouths, they hiss, and they gnash their teeth. We have swallowed her up. They're eating themselves. The heart of the people, in verse 18, cry out to the Lord. Wall of daughter Zion, let your tears run down like a river. Day and night, give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. It's a reflective passage because in Jeremiah, similar language is used, but in him all the while calling it him. You then see seven points made, seven imperatives made in the text. I don't want us to miss those that you pick up in verse nine, I'll, 19. Rather. I'll read 19, and, you, and then we'll go through them. Arise, cry out in the night from the first watch of the night. Pour your heart out like water before the Lord's presence. Lift up your hands to Him for the lives of your children who are fainting from hunger at the head of, of every street. Seven points to keep in mind when we are considering what it means to respond to our sin. Because responding to our sin is necessary if we don't want this to be entertainment. Now, if this is just entertainment, that's not fine. But you keep doing you. Let your tears flow. Don't find relief anywhere. Give your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out. You... Do something. Do something. This leaves us with the question, are the other people swept up in the wake of your sin? Because again, your sin does not have to be sin does not have to be yours to belong to you. And we just have to ask, are there people who are swept up in what our sin is? 
Are there people who are being destroyed and overwhelmed by our sin? Are there people who are being hurt by our sin? Because God is using this language to point out this, all of this language about children being hungry and children asking for wine. God is showing this stark reality of what it looks like when people abandon Him. And the hardest thing for me about reading any text like this is the reality of it because it is easy for us as we show up in this room dressed the way that we dress with microphones that we have to look at this text and just read a story of characters. This really happened. It really happened. Are we so numb to the fact that it might be happening right in our midst? That God wants us to look to sin and see what it is and turn away from it. Do something. Do something. In 20 through 22, we see the response of Israel, which is the first glimmer of hope that we've had in the whole book. Why would Israel respond? Because Israel really has a relationship with God. Even though they have settled for lesser things, even though their hearts have found satisfaction in the worst places, they really have a relationship with God, and a real relationship can stand the test of a hard conversation. The people of Israel can simultaneously protect. Healing is going to come not by forgetting, but by remembering, not by overlooking, not by forgetting. And a vital part of the healing process for any of us is confronting what's been lost. Confronting what we have forsaken. Lord, look and consider to whom you've done this. Should women eat their own children, the infants they've nurtured? Should priests and prophets be killed in your sanctuary? Both young and old are lying on the ground in the streets. My young women and young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the days of your anger, slaughtering without compassion. You summon those who terrorize me on every side as if for an appointed festival day. On the day of the Lord's anger, no one escaped or survived. My enemy has destroyed those I nurtured and reared. Healing will come for us when we remember God's faithfulness and we get what it means to be desperate apart from Him. Healing does not come by neglecting God's better way. It's remembering the essence of God's faithfulness will be eventually shown to us not in the Old Testament, not in the book of Lamentations. It's what Lamentations foreshadows. The people had a temple that was taking them somewhere else, projecting them to another place. But that's not just a place, it's a person. John chapter 2. For those of us who are looking for a glimmer of hope to which this text may take us. Verse 18. Rather, pick up with me in verse 13. The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
In the temple, he found people selling oxen and sheep and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, seems like entertainment's still the part of the deal. He drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and their oxen. He poured out the money changers, coins, and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for, the, for doing these things? And Jesus said, destroy this temple. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus had made. Where we truly meet with God is in the broken body of his son. We meet with God and have a glimpse of hope because of the beauty of the resurrection. And as we consider the weight of our sin, will we not forget the weightier value of our Savior? who delivers us from sin and death to life anew. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? If you're here and you do not have a faith relationship with Jesus, I want to invite you to that. Maybe, just maybe, this reminder of what took place to the people of Israel has shown you the stark nature of sin, the difficulty of what sin really is. And I would love for you to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. I'm going to celebrate that broken body and that shed blood in just a moment as we walk to the tables to take communion. And Jared will guide us in that. So if you're a member of Grace or you are a guest here who is a follower of Jesus and you just happen to be in this space today, when we take communion, you're invited. If you're not a believer, I would encourage you not to come to the table. It doesn't really mean anything for you. But the one who means everything is inviting you to turn from your sin and turn to him. He's inviting you to meet him in the darkness and despair of your sin-filled existence and to find hope in Jesus. And if you're a believer in this space and you would just say, hey, I'm looking at my own sin the way that I've hurt others, I would encourage you before you take of the table to just work out in your heart what God may be doing as he moves you from yourself toward him. Because he is not your enemy, but he will use everything in our lives, general, specific, to turn us to him.